This is Guns and Butter. Here we've put together all of these building blocks, not we, but the Bush administration. You know, from the domestic wiretapping, warrantless, you know, to the surveillance, to, you know, the use of terrorism laws, to the camps now for non-citizens, to the enemy combatant definitions, to offshore penal colonies, uh, to the denial of the writ of habeas corpus for masses of the population. You know, we, we now have the framework in place, both the legal framework, and now they're building the physical framework you know, for what could be very serious roundups of, uh, of political populations in this country. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michael Ratner. Today's show, Tyranny Abroad, Police State at Home. Michael Ratner is president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, a nonprofit human rights litigation organization in New York City. He has led the center in its aggressive legal fight against the post-9-11 violations of civil liberties by the Bush administration. He was part of the small group of lawyers that first took on representation of the Guantanamo detainees in January 2001, a case that went to the Supreme Court where a major victory was won in June 2004. The Center for Constitutional Rights has also filed cases on behalf of Bagram detainees challenging the Military Commissions Act that purportedly abolishes the writ of habeas corpus. He and his colleagues continue to represent hundreds of Guantanamo detainees and coordinate some 500 attorneys across the country on their behalf. Michael Ratner, welcome. Welcome and thank you for having me today. Michael Ratner, you've been on tour here in California with Attorney Lynn Stewart and others. Could you tell me what the most important aspect of your tour here in California has been? Why did you come all the way out here to go on tour with Lynn Stewart? Well, you know, Lynn's case is a really crucial case. Lynn is a is a lawyer who represents lots of very controversial people, represented the sheikh who had been accused and then convicted of terrorism, And Lynn's case, as a lawyer representing uh, an accused terrorist, really stands for a way of intimidating lawyers from representing those accused by the United States government of terrorism. And, you know, her case was actually initially brought with big celebration by Ashcroft and company. And my feeling about Lynn's case, apart from the wrongful conviction, is that it was a prosecution done to send a message to lawyers like myself and others who are out there trying to defend fundamental rights particularly of those people accused in the war of terrorism. So apart from my personal relationship with Lynn and feeling that she should be back practicing law in the best way, my view is it's really important that people throughout the country, and particularly lawyers, support Lynn and send the message uh, that this is the beginning, or really maybe the beginning in her case, of really going after lawyers. And you go after lawyers and try and deprive people of lawyers, you're really saying that the society is going to be able to do what it wants uh, with people it accuses of crimes. Now, in Lynn's case, it's interesting. It's only one aspect of a very large picture of going after lawyers. Lynn was the initial sounding alarm because it happened very shortly after 9-11. Her conduct actually happened under under, uh, Clinton's administration, under Janet Reno, and they actually didn't do anything about it. After 9-11, I think Ashcroft and the government saw a chance to send a message to lawyers uh, you shouldn't be representing people, and you shouldn't be representing them aggressively. 
And since then, you know, we have a group at the Center for Constitutional Rights. We coordinate approximately 600 Guantanamo lawyers representing about 400 people at Guantanamo. And a few weeks ago, uh, a man who was in charge of detainees for the Pentagon came out with the message that all of these lawyers, many of them from big firms, uh, should not be representing these people, or rather that the other clients of these firms should understand that lawyers in these firms are representing terrorists and that they should actually withdraw from that representation or understand that the money they're paying is being used to represent terrorists. Now, that is part and parcel of a major attack that's been made on the lawyers. Luckily, those lawyers held fast, even from the biggest firms in the country, and that man was actually forced to resign, showing really to me the change a little bit in the nature of how people are looking at this issue compared to five years ago after 9-11. But the Pentagon didn't give up trying to attack the lawyers, and Lynn's case fits within that. The next day, Alberto Gonzalez, our fine attorney general, said, it's the lawyers' fault that people are still in Guantanamo. He blamed the lawyers for all the litigation we're bringing to give people rights and said, it's the lawyers, but for the lawyers, we would already be able to have trials and do these things with people, et cetera, et cetera. So the lawyers are really, in my view, people like Lynn and the center's lawyers and these Guantanamo lawyers, they're sort of the bulk work between you know, the oppressors, in this case the Bush administration, and the oppressed, the people at the Guantanamo or the Sheikh or others who this government goes after. And you remove that and you take that away, you begin to put into place a building block of a police state. And that's my view, really, about what's going on here. Were you surprised somewhat initially? Did you feel that the legal profession was pretty slow in uh, speaking up against some of the laws that have been passed in this country with regard to representation of people? They were very slow in the beginning, I mean, particularly post-9-11. I mean, when the Center for Constitutional Rights began the Guantanamo cases, we could not find another human rights organization to do it with us. Really, the only lawyers who began it with us uh, were a few death penalty lawyers, individuals out there who were used to representing very controversial clients. And it really took until the victory in the Supreme Court in 2004, almost two years uh, after 9-11, um, actually more than two years after 9-11, for a, a group of big lawyers to start helping us. And I want to give them a lot of credit now. They've stuck with us. They've, they understand that how important... Uh, it is to be able to go to court and say to the government, why are you holding me, what we call the writ of habeas corpus. And they've really been strong, much stronger than the rest of the population, I, I'm afraid. Um, but certainly, certainly in the beginning, um, you know, people just didn't really question Guantanamo. Most lawyers just would have, you know, they would have said, you're crazy. These are a bunch of terrorists. These are the worst of the worst. You know, what are you doing representing these people who are in a war on terror? But today, that situation, I think, is quite changed, and it's actually a badge of a certain amount of honor in these firms that they actually have Guantanamo detainees. Michael, could you talk about the 2004 Supreme Court decision that you just referred to? Now, it was the Center for Constitutional Rights that brought that case on behalf of a Guantanamo prisoner, wasn't it? Yes, that's correct. The decision has the name Razul versus Bush, but it's, it's a case on behalf of a number of Guantanamo detainees the first one was actually David Hicks, who was still in Guantanamo. He's an Australian. Uh, he's been there over five and a half years without any kind of a hearing or trial. Uh, but that case was brought in the Supreme Court eventually, and the key issue was there in that case was, could the United States hold people forever, non-citizens in this case, in an offshore penal colony, in this case it was Guantanamo, without any rights and without allowing them the right to a lawyer, 
without allowing them the right to communicate with lawyers and without any right to go into a court and say to the Bush administration, give me the basis, the legal basis, why you're holding me. You have to come up with a legal basis. The Supreme Court, to its great credit, um, said in a 6-3 to three decision, yes, you have a right to file what we lawyers call a writ of habeas corpus, the right to say to the court, bring me before the court and force the government to say why you're holding me. And with that right, of course, came the right to have lawyers. That was June 2004. And I got letters from people saying, you've restored my faith in America. This is a great thing. You know, this is wonderful. But of course, the, the summation of that story is here we are in 2006, and we have not yet had one federal court hearing for any Guantanamo detainee due to the Bush administrations and, uh, sadly to say, many members of Congress, certainly the Republican Congresses, who have tried to override that right on two different occasions. Exactly. Now, when the Supreme Court ruled in your favor, let's say, that these prisoners in Guantanamo had the right of habeas corpus, didn't the Supreme Court rule that they had this right unless Congress ruled otherwise? And doesn't that then bring us to the Military Commissions Act of 2006? Well, it's close. You've put together, a, you've co-joined a few things. There is, there is an interesting issue here, and, uh, and you've gotten to it on the side. What, the issue is when the Supreme Court ruled in 2004 that people at Guantanamo had the right of habeas corpus, they ruled that the federal statute passed by Congress gave them the right of habeas corpus. They did not rule on whether or not the Constitution also gave them a right. So what that set up in 2004 was if you then wipe out the statute that gives you habeas corpus rights, is there a constitutional right left? And that's the big question we are now facing today. In between those years, 2004 to 2006, here's what happened. We win in 2004. Bush goes to Congress and says, take away the right. Congress takes away the statutory right in 2005 in an act for our purposes called the Detainee Treatment Act. So, that, so then it's gone. We then take the case to the Supreme Court again in early 2006. The Supreme Court in 2006 again says Congress didn't really take it away. Uh, they read the statute in a certain way. And they say you still have the right to go to court for habeas corpus. That's 2006, so twice in the Supreme Court already. Then Bush goes back to Congress again and said, do it the right way this time. Take it away and make no bones about it. Say it 15 different ways. Make sure you take away the right of habeas corpus for any non-citizen held outside the United States, not just Guantanamo. This includes Guantanamo, Bagram. I don't care you know, where you're held by the United States. Bush asked the Congress to take it away again. In October, Bush signed the legislation in October 2006 saying no habeas corpus for any non-citizen held anywhere in the world, even in the United States, um, just none for any non-citizen who he labels an enemy combatant. Let me be clear. Any non-citizen who the president deems as an enemy combatant, no right of habeas corpus. And that applies in the United States, applies anywhere in the world, and that is a key part of the Military Commission Act. That's part of that October Act that says no habeas corpus. So if you look at this in a, a shorthand, twice we went to the Supreme Court, twice the Supreme Court said there's a statutory right to habeas, twice Congress took it away. 
So now, to bring us up to the present, we then go back into court for the third time, really, on behalf of all of the Guantanamo detainees. In February of this year, of 2007, in early February, we lost the case in the middle appeals court on whether or not there's a habeas corpus right for non-citizens held outside the United States. And that's when the court finally reaches the constitutional issue, because now it's clear there's no longer a statute that gives you the right of habeas. So the question is, and people can understand this, the question is, does our Constitution guarantee people the right of habeas corpus? And the Court of Appeals, which is the Middle District of Columbia Court, a federal court, said two to one, the Constitution does not guarantee it. Now, here's how the Constitution reads. The Constitution says, and Congress shall not suspend the writ of habeas corpus unless it's time of rebellion or invasion. Congress didn't say there was a rebellion or invasion. No one says that's why. So what, what the government argued was that the Constitution, at the time it was passed in 17, whatever, 17, whatever the judiciary, 17, in the early, late 1700, 1786, 89, I don't remember, but um, that the Constitution didn't embody the right of habeas corpus for non-citizens outside the United States. And two judges agreed with that. A very strong dissent said, that's ridiculous. You know, this goes back to the Magna Carta. This is the year 1215. Uh, Obviously, you have the right. You can't just pick people up by the scruff of the neck, toss them in prison forever, never let them out, and not give them a right of habeas corpus. So she was very strong. Um, And if you look back at the earlier Supreme Court decisions in the Guantanamo cases, There's implications in those decisions that while they didn't tell us about what they would do if a constitutional case came, they were pretty clear that they believed that executive detentions, as they said, detentions by the president acting alone, and they used, I think, the word anathema to the American people, and they went back to the Magna Carta in 1215, and they cited the Magna Carta for saying, this has been 800 years. So we're going to win again in the Supreme Court. I mean, I'm, you know, am am I 100%? No. We lost one judge, we lost O'Connor, so it's probably a five to four decision. It's hard to believe that in some way, you know, uh, the building block to a police state is, is hanging on one judge, but in some way, in a legal sense, that's correct. And we could lose also, but I think we'll win. But here it has been, we'll win next year sometime, so in, you know, 2007 or early 2008. But um, the, the question is, you know, at, at that point, our clients have been in jail for over six years. They've never had a hearing. There are people who were picked up all over the world. There were people picked up, you know, by arbitrary whim, by bribes of $5,000, uh, and they've never had a hearing, and they're living in, you know, really uh, what you can only describe as, you know, Dante's ninth circle of hell down in Guantanamo. I'm speaking with attorney and president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, Michael Ratner. Today's show Tyranny Abroad, Police State at Home. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So the appeals court decision is being appealed to the Supreme Court. You're somewhat confident that you will prevail there. However, as you have pointed out, we have a different Supreme Court now. O'Connor is off, and we have uh, Roberts and Alito on. But you still feel that the chances are good that the appeal, that you would win the appeal before the Supreme Court? You know, it's, it's really shocking that we've gotten to this point, I mean, to be honest. I mean, we had a Congress that in the Military Commission Act 
Uh, we had 48 votes of Democrats and we, to save habeas, and we couldn't do it because we obviously had a majority Republican. But that we had to get to this point where a fundamental right is actually at issue in this country is, is really shocking. And I think part of my optimism, if I want to call it that, about winning is the consequences are so dire if we lose that it's, it's almost unspeakable because the consequences, if you lose, are saying that the president can label anybody he wants, particularly non-citizens, as an enemy combatant and put them in a prison anywhere in the world and hold them forever, disappear them essentially, deprive them of a right to a lawyer. And one thing that we realized happens at Guantanamo, when you hold people without rights, without the right to see a lawyer, without the right to go to court, oftentimes, and in this case systematically, they get tortured. And that's what happened at Guantanamo. It's only once we started getting lawyers to Guantanamo, after June 2004, when we won in the Supreme Court the first time, that we stopped the torture, or most of the torture. So, so a key part of being able to get access to people and letting them go to court is so that they're not in secret detentions, because secret detentions are really automatically the same as torture. I mean, that's what happens in secret detentions. It's happened historically. It happened in our country. That's what happened at Guantanamo. That's what still happens at CIA secret sites. That's what still may be happening at Bagram. So part of my belief here is, is the country really going to take the step that it already has taken really for five years, but is, this, is it going to be confirmed by a Supreme Court uh, that in this day and age you can hold people without any kind of a court hearing? It's hard for me to believe that. Um, and so part of my, my optimism is maybe not optimism, but it's just that the alternative seems, basically seems like the setting up of a tyranny or a police state. And the idea that that would be acceptable uh, is remarkable to me. Of course, you know, there's arguments in the broader issue about where the United States is in terms of democracy and decline as an empire and all that that unfortunately fit into a historical pattern from Rome to you know, going forward. But, but it would be remarkable. And we still at least, I think we still have five judges on that court. But that it has gotten to that point and that you don't have at this point the backbone in the Congress yet uh, to really restore habeas. Yes, there's people saying we should. Yes, there's legislation by Leahy saying we should. But of course, the president could very well veto it. But what Congress could do is simply say, we will not give you any more money to run Guantanamo or we will not give you any more money uh, to detain anyone in the world without giving them access to a court. Pretty simple to do. They don't need the president for that. And, you know, of course, out here we have Nancy Pelosi who could be leading the fight on that. So they can avoid it. And we have a population out there who seems quiescent on this issue, who don't really understand that it might... This legislation, even as it stands, without knowing what it leads to or could lead to, this applies to permanent residence habeas. That's a legal person in the United States. Your neighbor, you know, lots of permanent residents. They could be picked up by the president tomorrow, labeled enemy combatants, uh, put in a prison underground in the U.S., above ground in the U.S., flown to Guantanamo, flown to Bagram, flown to who knows where else, and you never hear from them again. I mean, it, it's, it, it's really almost impossible for me to believe it, I mean, to be honest. I just, it's, you know, it's not... You know, sure, our, our, our country has had only a semblance of democracy for a fair number of years now, but that we actually would take that step. I mean, they've taken the step. Let's, let's say the, the Congress and the president have taken that step, and one court is already, and the circuit court has taken that step. And so now can it be that one judge is standing between, you know, uh, democracy or what we have left of democracy and essentially a fascist state? I mean, it, 
that's what that's what I'm I'm saying. And I never like to put things on the courts because it takes populations to change the world in a social way. But but so far we just haven't seen the push here. Although you know a lot of people are pretty upset by the denial of habeas corpus. I mean, you say that to somebody that's like apple pie. I mean, if you say there's one fundamental thing that distinguishes a democracy from a police state, it's the right to go to court and challenge your detention. And that's why it goes back to 1215. That's why it's considered fundamental. That's why it's in the Magna Carta. Take that away and, you know, there's really nothing between, you know, nothing between really a police state. Uh, There's nothing between the president and just, uh, and him being allowed to do uh, whatever, whatever he wants. And with regard to the designation of enemy combatant. In the Military Commissions Act that was passed in October of 2006, doesn't that Military Commissions Act say that a U.S. citizen can be designated as an enemy combatant? And then does that therefore mean that uh, U.S. citizens could be denied the right of habeas? I want to explain something here um, because it's very interesting about what we're speaking of. The first thing is the Military Commission Act opens with defining people as enemy combatants. It really doesn't make any difference what the content of an enemy combatant definition is because there's no there's no check on it because the president can simply decide that I'm an enemy combatant and there's no definition of the word enemy combatant other than, you know, alleged terrorist or something. It's just, it's complete BS. So first of all, designating a person an enemy combatant depends on, you know, what the president had for breakfast that morning. I mean, it's just, it's whatever he wants to do. Uh, it does then distinguish between citizens and non-citizens. Non-citizens are denied the writ of habeas corpus. Citizens still have the writ of habeas corpus. They can still go to court and challenge their detention. But let's, let's be instructive about that, because the first thing is, let's assume you get the writ of habeas corpus. Um, they, they can take a very long time to get it into court and for it to be decided. And the case we have that's really instructive on that is Jose Padilla's case. Jose Padilla is a U.S. citizen. People will be familiar with him by a uh, designation that has no application, really, the so-called dirty bomber. They have never tried him for anything like that. But he was held as an enemy combatant up until very recently, four years or more as an enemy combatant. During that period, he was eventually given the right of habeas corpus as a U.S. citizen after two years. But he was tortured during that period in the same way the Guantanamo people were, tortured to the point, tortured to the point where he is now unable to cooperate with his attorneys in the trial, and they've had him they're having him examined by a psychiatrist, and he's essentially a shadow of what he was because of that torture. So while we have this habeas corpus thing going on, the government is torturing the guy. And then uh, and then when the when the designation of enemy combatant gets close to the Supreme Court, when the lawyers have appealed the case, it gets all the way close to the Supreme Court, right on the edge of the Supreme Court reviewing it, the government says, oh, no, the Bush administration says, no, no, he's no longer an enemy combatant. We're going to charge him with aiding and abetting conspiracy and send him down to Florida, put him in some kind of trial down in Florida, so he actually is now in a criminal trial and he's no longer an enemy combatant. Because what happened there is the government was afraid of testing the proposition that you could pick up a U.S. citizen, hold them as an enemy combatant, give them no real rights other than the writ of habeas corpus, and be done with it. 
Um, so we still are unclear now. We're not The government thinks it can label you and I, if you're a citizen, I don't know, but they can label you an enemy combatant as well as myself and hold us and only give us the right of habeas corpus. Now, what's really interesting here is this is how far behind we are. Let's say you get the right of habeas corpus. First, it took Padilla years to get it and get in there. You know, he was destroyed by the time he got it. What happens, actually, in the habeas corpus hearing? Um, the government has to come up with a legal reason for holding you. Now, it, the question is, does it have to charge you with a crime, or can it hold you for some other reason? Because you're dangerous, because basically because, or you're a threat to the society. So what we have not even gotten to test yet is what we can broadly say is the concept of preventive detention, which is to say, can you round up people, and then, even if they get the right to go to court, produce evidence in the court that says, well, Michael Ratner is a dangerous person. We know he hangs out at the cafe with al-Qaeda people, and therefore we want to hold him in preventive detention during this so-called global war on terror. We're not even at whether they can hold people. We haven't even gotten people into habeas corpus hearings where they can decide, uh, is it legal to hold people without charging them? So what you have is here you have masses of people held out there without ever being charged with a crime. And we don't even know whether that's legal. We don't think it's legal. We think you have to either charge people or release them. We don't think you can round up thousands of people and hold them in what is really preventive detention. And the point is we haven't even gotten to that test because we're still fighting whether we can even go to court for these people. First, we fought on Guantanamo, and we're still now in that fight. And then the one U.S. citizen case we had, um, we, we got close to the Supreme Court, and they, they then charged him with a crime. So we have two huge looming issues here. Can you get to court? And if you get in, is the court going to uphold essentially a preventive detention law in this country? That's serious, serious stuff. And I, I just, you know, I am flatly opposed uh, to preventive detention kinds of laws. Now, in addition, isn't the federal government or the administration claiming not only do they not have to charge someone, but they don't even have to let anyone know that the person's been picked up. Well, that's actually right. I mean, you know, if you look at what I what I call when I give a talk, sometimes I call, you know, fundamental building blocks of a police state. Uh, and and one of them, of course, is the denial of the right to go to court. Uh, you know, just that they can hold you. And the second one is disappearances. And that's what we're really addressing here, that they can pick up and they've done it. I mean, there's lots of people that are in detention that we they, their families don't know, their governments don't know. Nobody knows. They pick them up, and they take them to they can take them to Bagram. They can take them to a secret CIA detention site, and we never hear from them again. And certainly, at one point in the secret CIA sites, there were probably well over a hundred people, and they may have been a lot more than that. That's you know that's just a very rough number that's sort of thrown out there. Um, but we don't know how many people are been picked up and just whisked away. And, and, you know, I think Bush said in one of his speeches, he implied that some of those people were murdered. Um, he wouldn't say murdered, he would say killed, but, you know, disposed of or whatever language he used. So we're, we're talking about, you know, really a, a system of injustice here uh, that, that, you know, is, is the kind that, like, some of the worst dictatorships used. And when I, when I sometimes speak about this, I use the word, I say this is a, basically an Americanized Operation Condor, Operation Condor was the system of, of picking up people everywhere in the world, torturing them and killing them, that Pinochet ran for years in Chile when he was the dictator from 73 on after he overthrew Salvador Allende. And that's the model here, Operation Condor. And that's what we're running. 
Now, we've spoken uh, briefly about a rendition where people are picked up in any part of the world and taken to a secret prison and perhaps tortured or, or whatever. And we're speaking about roundups generally, but bringing it back domestically, there have been big roundups of people who do not have the proper papers to be in the United States legally, whatever their status is. There was a recent Washington Post article that talked about detention camps or internment camps along the Texas-Mexico border where, well, in those camps and in other jails, over 25,000 people are being held in pods or tents with inadequate food, no phones, it's cold, and they're being held by ICE, Immigration and Custom Enforcement, which is part of Homeland Security. ICE has its own facilities, I understand, and then a lot of these places are privatized. From what I read in the papers, the privatized facilities are uh, much worse even than the federal government's. Now, in terms of these roundups, do you see a relationship between the status of an enemy combatant and these so-called illegal immigrant detention centers? Now, first of all, is this a new development? Or has this been going on for a long time? How would you relate the past to the present with regard to these roundups? Well, you know, those stories that I hear, particularly in California, of course, and I'm aware of the Texas prisons, uh, those things make me on one level so angry that it's almost indescribable and also a feeling of hopelessness about where where is the outrage in this country over how we are treating people and right now particularly aimed at non-citizens. You know, in some way, it didn't. It obviously didn't begin with this administration. I mean, it, so, it really sort of began under Clinton, um, with I think it was the uh, anti-death penalty. You know, in, in whatever that act. And, oh, the anti-immigration law, whatever the technical name was. The number of people in immigration holding facilities was under three thousand, I think, when Clinton took office. And they frequently would give people bond, you know, or bail when they were picked up. ICE was not out there all over the place. They weren't murdering people as much on the border with Mexico. I mean, it was a very different situation. But starting with Clinton, we're talking about 3,000 or so at the beginning of Clinton, maybe 9,000 by the end. And then, of course, now we're at at 25,000. And I I think we have to look at the roundups. First, you have to look at what happened after 9-11. After 9-11, and the center has a case called Turkmen v. Ashcroft, where thousands of Muslim young men were rounded up. And that already was just a complete outrage because people were rounded up on the most minor violations. I mean, not reporting their address after 30 days or taking a slightly alternative job at a gas station. And they were ripped away from their families. Their families were not told where they were. They were frequently put in one facility. The families were told there's another. And we've litigated that, particularly around the issues of the beatings that that were undertaken. And, of course, now we're seeing an extension of this to a much broader uh, broader non-citizen community. And if you put this all together, I mean... You know, begin to put put things together that they're now effectively rounding up tens of thousands of people without a public outcry, putting them in camps that are far from any of their community or their family or places to visit or where they can get legal representation. Um, you're talking about essentially disappearing a large segment of a of a certain population. And if you look at that as what model does that set, and then you couple that with being able to designate non-citizens or citizens as enemy combatants uh, and begin to deny them 
certain kinds of rights in court and begin to say you don't have to charge people, you're talking about what ultimately is, looks like a massive preventive detention potential here. And even the buildings of these temporary, what are they, tents or so? They're not tents, but these, well, you call them pods, but I've seen pictures of them. They're like, you know, like out of a, a space-age quarantine or something. Uh, and you have people, human beings, living in those. And the question you ask yourself is, yeah, it's for them, but it is also practice for, for others, for what they can do if, if this country, you know, begins to get more and more people who are opposed to what are considered to be and what all of us consider to be you know, outrageous policies, both domestically but particularly abroad, you know, next being, next target being, you know, Iran possibly. So it's, it's completely worrisome, and as worrisome as it is to me, what's most concerning is that it's almost off the radar, that, that there is not a public outrage that you could leave people in these camps. But it, this whole thing is like, it's really nerve-wracking for all of us, and it should be. I mean, that we're able to just pick people up and take them to some camp in Texas and stick them in a pod. I mean, you know, where are we living? Yes, and I've read that there are people in some of these camps that have been there for over a year, or maybe even two years. I'm speaking with attorney and president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, Michael Ratner. Today's show, Tyranny Abroad, Police State at Home. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What is your view of the so-called war on terror? And where do you think this is going? Do you think the object of the war on terror, for instance, has domestic implications? And what do you think its ultimate objective is? I mean, the answer is from the very first day, I thought it had huge domestic implications. The first article I wrote six weeks after 9-11 was called Moving Toward a Police State or Have We Arrived? And I didn't know anything about Guantanamo. I didn't know anything about torture. What I was looking there, I remember there were three issues. One was domestic wiretapping. And that was not even before we knew there was all this warrantless wiretapping. That was the expansion of the secret wiretap law to include American citizens in a broader way. And of course, now we know we had our eye on the wrong ball, that in fact, they weren't even going by the law. They were just wiretapping all of us without any kind of warrants. So that's obviously domestic. Then there was an expansion of the use of uh, the definition of terrorism. And, and domestic terrorism, so that, you know, if you did an illegal act and it was for intimidating a population, basically the demonstrations in Seattle against the WTO, that could constitute domestic terrorism. And all done in the Patriot Act. These are Patriot Act provisions. And this is all done as a direct effect on domestic law. You know, there were many other parts of the Patriot Act. There was also the piece that they could simply issue a letter to your local bank or uh, rent a car to get all of your financial records. So you're talking about, within six weeks after 9-11, of a huge domestic surveillance machine. And then right after that, Ashcroft decides to change the FBI guidelines that required there to be at least some evidence of criminality before the FBI could open an investigation on you. Go on completely. Open season. FBI can go into anywhere it wants, can surveil you, can join as informants, the whole business. So that's that's just within the first four months. And now if we go down, down the line and look at it, first of all, we have the idea that you can be detained indefinitely forever without being charged with a crime. And in, still in U.S. citizens can still go to court to challenge that. Non-U.S. citizens cannot. As we speak right now, they cannot go to court if they're enemy combatants, period. And U.S. citizens have very minimal rights, but underneath it all is still the idea that you can preventively detain masses of people uh, without any kind of criminal charges. 
And then the second thing is how do you treat those people? Can you torture them? Can you use cruel and human and degrading treatment on them? Well, you know, right now, right now the Bush administration believes that it can still use coercive methods of interrogation against people, citizen or not, domestically or not. Just look at Jose Padilla. U.S. citizen had the hell tortured out of him. And they think it's legal. They believe that that's necessary. And Bush, on September 6, 2006, what does he say? He says when he claims he's closing down the secret sites, not closing them down, he says, I, I'm, I'm releasing a lot of, not releasing, I'm sending them to Guantanamo. I don't believe any of it, but he says we still need to use the kind of methods we use to get information. So he's openly saying we're going to continue to torture. You know, domestically, people are frightened in this country. And then you, don't, you look at the areas that I don't even focus on. You look at the First Amendment area. You look at what happened at demonstrations. Have we had a demonstration in this country in five years in which people don't have pens, in which they have to be put into pens in block by block? What happened to mass demonstrations? What happened to the First Amendment? So you can go across the board. I mean, this is a different country in a very negative way uh, than it was five years ago. And what you notice is, even though we've had the Democrats win, and even though we may hopefully get a Democratic president, is that it's very hard to change things that have been in effect. What happens is, when the Republicans or whoever got together, even Democrats obviously voted for Patriot Act, voted for the war in Iraq. A few of them, many of them voted for the Military Commission Act. The only thing they were concerned by in the Military Commission Act was the habeas part. They weren't concerned by a number of the other issues in there, like the definition of enemy combatant. So, and once you get those kind of repressive statutes passed in that repressive atmosphere, that becomes the floor. And from then on, it's very hard to get anybody to go under the floor back into the basement and get our rights back. That's one thing I've just noticed all along. That's right. There's no going back once Pandora's box has been opened. That, that's actually a huge problem. And everybody says, oh, you know, this was just an aberration of, you know, the Republicans doing this. But, you know, we do not see in the first hundred days of the Democrats that they had anything to do with giving us back our civil rights or civil liberties. They were about important issues, but safe issues. Minimum wage, corruption in Congress, even that done poorly, but nothing about giving us back our liberty. Nothing, not a word. And maybe habeas will get up on the agenda, but you don't see much. Michael, could you talk a bit about what is referred to as a parallel judicial system, and that is the military tribunals, the, the military tribunals to try enemy combatants. Now, have we had any of these tribunals yet? No, we haven't had one trial yet. They were announced on November 13, 2001. A number of people objected to them, and we have not yet had one trial. Now, what they are is the normal judicial system is a regular judicial system that people know in which you get charged with a crime, you go into either federal court or state court, or there's a military justice system, which is if you're in the military or picked up actually as a soldier on the other side, you can be tried by a courts martial. Now, I'm not in love with court martials compared to regular trials, but there is, there is a whole set of due process protection. And they've really gone through the courts over the years, and they do give you uh, and military lawyers will fight for it and say, these are really decent trials. And I think that's right. I mean, are they perfect trials? No, no trial is. So those are the two systems. And normally, certainly since the Second World War, various laws, Geneva Convention, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, basically say you cannot set up special trials after you capture the people. You have to use regularly constituted tribunals. The words are regularly constituted tribunals. I've always interpret that as have most people to mean 
courts that are in existence at the time of the crimes or the time the people are arrested, detained, captured. And the reason for that is you don't want the executive deciding that, oh, I've captured you now, now I'm going to set up a special trial for you, and then bends the rules in favor of prosecution. What happens when you set up special trials is the rules get bent so that the guys get convicted. And, of course, that's what's happened here with military commissions. So take us back, November 2001, the president says, I'm going to try people with military commissions. A lot of people start to scream. He then backtracks a little, starts putting a, some, a little bit of better laws in there, I mean, what he called better laws. But eventually that case goes to the Supreme Court, the first person, Hamden, who's going to be tried by a military commission. He's a Guantanamo detainee. Supreme Court says, no, you can't do this. And they use actually an amazing quote in there. They say, no, you can't do this because what you've done here is you've set up commissions uh, that are outside the law, that violate the Geneva Conventions, that allow evidence from torture to be used, uh, all kinds of hearsay to be used, in which the defendant is not present at a lot of the trial, and in which the laws violated have been all written by the executive. And the court said, it used a quote from James Madison that said, tyranny is when all power is in the hands of the executive, when the judicial power and the legislative power and the executive power is in one person. And they said, that we can't do here. And they said they're illegal. They're contrary to Geneva. But they did suggest in that opinion that possibly Congress could write rules for military commissions that might be constitutional. Now, my view is, my personal view is, and it's a legal one, is that you can never have a military commission that's constitutional. You have to use courts that are there, either courts, marshals, or regular courts. But arguably, if you set up a court that exactly paralleled all the due process rights of one of these other courts, you might get away with it. So what Congress then did in the Military Commission Act is it set up a set of rules uh, that it hoped, or the drafters, which were Republicans, hoped in the Bush administration that the court wouldn't throw out. And again, that will be tested in the Supreme Court again at some point, whether someone has to go through a trial to test them or whether they can uh, test them before, I don't know. But those, again, are still subject to a lot of the things that the Supreme Court said were no good. You can still use evidence from torture in those trials up to a certain date. If a person was tortured before the Military Commission Act, it's amazing. You can use the evidence. If they're tortured after the Military Commission Act or really after the McCain Amendment that prohibited torture, you can still use evidence if it's, cruel, if it's from cruel and human and degrading treatment, just not if it's from torture. It's all BS. Basically, you can use evidence from torture in these trials. Well, I, don't, I just don't believe, as bad as our courts are, that they're going to uphold that provision. And you can still use evidence from hearsay. So if Mr. X told Mr. Y told Mr. Z, and you can't cross-examine them, they can put that evidence in. They could conceivably even show a movie, you know, and say, you know, this helps convict the guy. So these courts are no good, and they shouldn't be any good, and it, and it diminishes any kind of, any country that would call itself a democracy or a just system should not be using special kangaroo courts. Now, the question of who's going to be tried, if we look at this whole panoply, this whole system, so the president has the authority to call people enemy combatants, pick them up, hold them in jail indefinitely forever, particularly non-citizens. Citizens may get the, have a right of habeas, but it, it's a difficult right. So the question is, why should he ever try anybody? He can hold people forever without trying them. So, but he's decided, for whatever reasons, the president says he's going to try a few people. But of course, it's been six years. They've never tried anybody. They could have tried someone with court-martials. So now they're, they've charged three people at Guantanamo, and they say, we're going to try them. 
course, there's going to be court challenges. We'll see if they ever try them. But the real point of military commissions to me is they will never be very many trials. The real problem here, military commissions are a huge problem, and I think they'll get knocked out. But compared to holding people indefinitely forever without any kind of trial, people in military commissions at least are standing there getting accused of something and can say, I didn't do it. But what's really interesting is even if you get tried by a military commission and get acquitted, and the very rare chance of that considering it's stacked against you, they still say we can hold you forever under preventive detention at Guantanamo. Think about it. That's the craziest thing I ever heard. They finally get you to a trial, a trial in which the rules are slanted against you, and they could acquit you, find you not guilty, and then the government says, well, we still think you're a dangerous person, and we're going to hold you in preventive detention at Guantanamo. So we're talking about, I mean, you know, Kafka would have, you know, these things are called Kafka-esque because there's no sort of exit out of them, and there's no way out. I mean, he would have probably written even a better novel. <laughs> you know, the, the Trial is the novel that Kafka wrote. Yes. But, you know, this is Orwellian, whatever description you want to use. I mean, you know, they pick up people, hold them forever for preventive detention. They, if they want to try them, they put a kangaroo court. Kangaroo court acquits them, finds them not guilty. They can still hold them. So there, there's no way out. And it's actually when, when I had some of my clients, they're the Tipton guys, they're guys from England. They were freed eventually when the British intelligence found that they were in England during the period the U.S. said they were at Osama bin Laden's training camp, and they had confessed to being at Osama bin Laden's training camp. You don't understand, under torture, my client said, we trained with bin Laden. <laughs> and, of course, they, they, they first said we were in England, but the government said, no, no, we don't believe you. And they said, okay, after some torture, they said, okay, we trained with bin Laden, because under torture, you say what the government wants. So what's interesting about that is that when they confessed, they said the reason we confessed is because we saw no exit from here. We saw no way to get out of Guantanamo. And they said to us, well, look, it. here's a chart of, you know, closeness to Guantanamo. The lowest was trained with al-Qaeda. Uh, the highest was, you know, through a bomb or something, whatever it was. And they said, well, we figured we could stop the torture and maybe have a chance of getting out eventually if we just said we were in a training camp and never did anything bad. So they confessed because it was a completely closed situation. The interrogators all believed that the Guantanamo detainees were there for a reason, that they were dead guilty, otherwise they wouldn't be there. And they had no, no lawyers at that time in 2003 and, and through June of 2004. Everybody was assumed guilty. And the only way the people could figure out to stop the torture and have a shot of getting out was they confessed to the lowest rung on the ladder. You know, if we weren't sitting in some, you know, room in San Francisco thinking that we still have a democracy and we walk out on the streets and people, see people go to restaurants, this is going on in our country right now. And you have to ask yourself, you know, Sure, it's not the same as people being taken to concentration camps in Germany or 30,000 people being murdered in Argentina in camps or 3,000 or 4,000 in Chile, although Chile we're getting close. Um, but when you think about a population that, that walks around as if they're sleepwalking on this stuff, um, that probably, most of them probably just don't want to know. And when I read books about Germany, it's that the people actually didn't want to know. They wanted to turn away. And you ask yourself, I, I look around and it looks normal outside. It looks the same as it looked 10 years ago little different because we're getting more chain stores, but, but, you know, it looks the same. And yet this is, this is going on, whether it's the detention camps in Texas with 25,000 people, you know, throughout, you know, non-citizens, or the ones in Guantanamo, or the ones in Bagram, or the ones in, you know, in the secret CIA sites. Right now, this is not a long thing about the future. This is now, and this is what we're facing now. And the question is, do you ever go back from 
from a road that is really in which we have gone very far down the road to a police state. And I don't know, and, I'm, and I don't know what it will take. I am not convinced that we have a very good shot of getting back uh, what we lost as a result of the Bush administration. I'm speaking with attorney and president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, Michael Ratner. Today's show, Tyranny Abroad, Police State at Home. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. As you've pointed out, things have moved very quickly since the events of 9-11. I would assume they're going to continue to move quickly. I have the same impression you do. I walk around town and everything looks normal and people are eating in restaurants. And and yet I read about, for instance, the $35 million plus open-ended contract that uh, Halliburton, Kellogg, Brown and Root have with Homeland Security to build detention facilities for people who are here illegally, but then it also says, or for other programs as they arise. And that is very, very scary. Yeah, that's remarkable. I read that legislation, and I think one of your local people here, I like Marge Cohn, put it, put out an article about it, the president of the National Lawyers Guild, and, and she was completely right. That's the way that what you said is how the legislation reads. And how could a member of Congress allowed an open-ended piece of legislation appropriation like that. How could they do that? How could they say, and for other programs as they arise? Because what are we talking about? Here we've put together all of these building blocks, not we, but the Bush administration, you know, from the domestic wiretapping, warrantless, you know, to the surveillance, to, you know, the use of terrorism laws, to the camps now for non-citizens, to the enemy combatant definitions, to offshore penal colonies, Uh, to the denial of the writ of habeas corpus for masses of the population. And then you see a contract like this to the place that is building these these prisons all over the world. And you have to say to yourself, this is, you know, we, we now have the framework in place that if and when they want both the legal framework and now they're building the physical framework, you know, for what could be very serious roundups of, uh, of political populations in this country. That's exactly right. This is a reality that so many people are not cognizant of. And they should be cognizant of the fact that what we have already now, habeas, no habeas, we have a preventive detention law. We have never charged any of these non-citizens, certainly here in the country, but in Guantanamo or anywhere else. And even Jose Padilla was never charged for four years. And they believe they have the right to hold non-citizens and citizens in preventive detention forever, even if some of them get some right to go to court. And the courts don't seem to be taking on the preventive detention issue. So you've gotten a mass preventive detention law really in place over the last five years. And that's pretty serious stuff because what are the criteria for preventive detention? What does it mean? To clarify, Michael, the preventative detention that they are now enforcing, is there a law that that enables them to do this or are they just doing this? They're just doing it. The president claims uh, that as commander-in-chief, that he, during a so-called war on terror, that he has the right to take all necessary measures, and that includes preventive detention. It included warrantless wiretapping. That's what his defense was. His defense is, I'm the commander-in-chief. You've given me authority to make a war in Iraq. You've given me other authority to go after 9-11 people and terrorists. You know, he exaggerates, but as commander-in-chief, I have the right to take all necessary measures. And this is what I call, you can call it the Pinochet defense, because Pinochet said as commander-in-chief of national security, I have the right to take whatever measures, including torture. You could also call it the John Yoo defense, because John Yoo, a so-called professor at Berkeley, says 
that in the name of national security, the president has the right to torture people. He even made a statement saying that um, if the president felt it was necessary, that he could, he could uh, crush the testicles of a child who, uh, whose father he wanted to get testimony from in the name of national security, or words to that effect. I mean, it's remarkable. So what we're talking about here is, is essentially a president that believes that he can do this as, as the commander-in-chief. And you can do it until the war on terrorism is over. And everybody has said, you know, it's all the administration. That could go forever. could certainly go for 50 years. So it's a, it's a long road. Michael, you have a petition before the German government, don't you, with regard to war crimes committed by Donald Rumsfeld? Yeah, I mean, I look at this situation that we've described, and I asked myself a couple of years ago when we did it at the center, what are we going to do here? The U.S. courts, you know, they're slow. We can't get any accountability of anybody in this administration for torture. You know, Rumsfeld at that time controlled the military side, the military justice side, Alberto Gonzalez, one of the co-conspirators in this, controlled the civil criminal side. So we decided to go to Germany and file a case. We did it in November. It was met with a, a tremendous support, an outpouring of support. I was really shocked. I mean, it was a, something to see. It was a, filed a few days after Rumsfeld resigned. We also named uh, John Yu at Berkeley uh, as one of the uh, co-conspirators in aiding and abetting uh, the torture program in the United States. It's under a law called universal jurisdiction law. And if you think about it, certain crimes really have over the years become to be what they call universal crimes, which means they are considered so heinous uh, that the people who commit them can be arrested and tried anywhere in the world. came out of the concept of piracy. Uh, war crimes fit that, grave breaches of the Geneva Convention. Torture is a grave breach of Geneva Conventions. Uh, we went to Germany on this. As I said, we had 150 press in the room. Uh, actually filed it in a famous theater called the Babylon, which was a, a site in East Berlin of anti-fascist resistance. And on the marquee in front of it, it had in German, human rights against Rumsfeld. And I have to tell you, Europe is very different than this country. Europe, while it has played not such a great role always on the renditions and some of the other issues or some of their agencies have, um, they still have some belief in the rule of law and that authorities under law. And what they've done in Europe is they've taken this case very seriously. We may or may not sustain it in Germany. You know, there's obviously political considerations. Already it's been effective. Rumsfeld, I think, will not visit Germany and probably not Europe at all. I don't know what John Yu is planning to do, and I don't know if he's going to have a visit. If I were him, I would be a bit frightened of going to Europe right now. So it has had an effect. We believe there should be no safe haven for the Donald Rumsfelds of the world, for torturers. And if we lose in Germany, we can go to another country, we can go to Spain. So this is not going to come to an end quickly. We're serious. We've been pursuing it um, extremely seriously. And, you know, our hopes would be that that case would spur even our Congress to start a serious hearing saying, let's look up the chain of command and see where what Donald Rumsfeld's and others' roles were. But I, I'm afraid that's not going to happen, even though it's in it's in black and white. I mean, these guys wrote the memos. They wrote the torture, uh, the methods of torture. You know, it's, it's as if the emperor has no clothes. Everybody in the world knows that, except apparently uh, people in the United States. And finally, what do you think the average person uh, could do under these circumstances? I think what this country is really facing, if you read through just the Bush administration stuff, the stuff that happened before with the American, all those institutes they belong to, and sadly, not a really different page than most of the Democrats. 
because I'm not as overt. They're still not. They're still on the page of keeping an empire together abroad, and all it means economically from oil and every other basis. Uh, that we're really facing tyranny at home, uh, really because we are an imperial country that has tyranny abroad. So really, the option here is for people to fight back. And you know, we've had good examples in the tour I was on with uh, Lynn and Mamiya, are two examples of individuals fighting back, but in a broader way. I mean. Lynn was supposed to get 30 years in jail, Lynn Stewart. She got 28 months, a huge difference. And that was the result of a thousand letters that went to the judge and, and a huge outcry about her case. Mamiya has been alive, let's be honest, for 25 years, even though it's been on death row. And that is because of a people's struggle to keep Mamiya away from the death penalty. So there are struggles and those are examples for me of things that can be won. But what can people do today? So if I'm giving advice to people, I mean, people like Nancy Pelosi ought to hear from people that this is an outrage. This country is sinking into a police state, and there's no going back if this really happens. So it's going to take demonstrate. It's going to take the usual things everybody says. People in a lot of those home countries have had big demonstrations about the fact that their countries were not doing anything to free their citizens. And the first people to get out were the people, not just the U.S. allies, of course they were, but United Kingdom people. UK, England had a huge demonstrations against Guantanamo. 250 members of parliament signed petitions. So there's ways to do it, but you know, this, this country has, has been very quiescent in the face of, in the, in the face of it. And partly for reasons we've sort of talked about is it, it's aimed at the non-citizens to start with. It's aimed at the other, it's aimed at Muslims, it's aimed at undocumented workers. And so people say, well, it's not my problem. It's not my worry, it's somebody else. And because people are afraid, and they'll say they're willing to trust the big brother, uh, but they should start being afraid for themselves. Michael Ratner, thank you very much. Thank you. This, this was a really interesting interview for me. I appreciate it. Something happening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. You've been listening to attorney Michael Ratner. Today's show has been Tyranny Abroad police state at home. Michael Ratner is president of the Center for Constitutional Rights. He recently filed his second criminal complaint in the courts of Germany against Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and other U.S. officials seeking the initiation of criminal prosecutions against them for the Abu Ghraib abuse and torture, as well as for their actions at Guantanamo. The Center for Constitutional Rights has also successfully challenged sections of the Patriot Act and is litigating a major lawsuit on behalf of post-9-11 immigration detainees in the U.S. Michael Ratner has been adjunct professor of international human rights litigation at the Columbia Law School, lecturer at Yale Law School, and former president of the National Lawyers Guild. Visit the website www.ccr-ny.org. That's ccr-ny.org. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Are you ready?
peace, give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?